The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And I get the privilege today of kicking off a three-week series on the topic of stewardship, particularly the topic of giving. And as an elder team, we have been thinking and praying about what to teach on next, and we've been thinking about our people and searching the scriptures, and we've concluded that it would be good to return to this particular spiritual discipline. You know, there are a number of spiritual disciplines in the uh, Christian life, important spiritual disciplines, and we need to be reminded again and again what those disciplines are and their importance in the Christian life, and we need to often circle back to those spiritual disciplines. And... Today we're going to kick off a series on giving. And if you've been listening in or if you've been have joined us, you might remember a few weeks ago I preached on the parable of the talents. And you might remember that Jesus has entrusted to us all that we have. Opportunities, financial resources, relationships, our jobs, our wealth to steward for his glory. And among all those things, our wealth is one of the most important things that we steward. And Jesus spoke often about our relationship to our wealth. And then not only that, but if you might recall, in our membership covenant, there's a specific portion in that membership covenant where it outlines under the heading, quote, responsibilities of the church, what the member agrees to. And these are not some extra biblical standards that the the elders are laying upon the church in order to lord it over the church. But these are the spiritual disciplines that we've included in the membership covenant that the Christian, that Scripture calls the Christian to prioritize in his or her life for the glory of God. And giving is one of them. And it just specifically, it says underneath the, the heading responsibilities to the church, that each member agrees to. It says, quote, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry and the expenses of the church. Giving particularly to Christ's church is one of the central disciplines of the Christian life. And we will talk about that in a little bit. For now, I want us to consider a few important biblical principles. So you can see in your, as you can see in the bulletin, the title, a few important biblical principles for Christ-centered giving. And I want us to first turn to uh, Romans chapter 12. Please turn to Romans chapter 12. The first principle is going to be live all your life in light of God's mercy. Live all of your life in light of God's mercy. And as you're turning to Romans chapter 12, I want to tell you about a name named Charles Feeney. Charles Feeney, if you've ever been in an airport, you might have gone into a duty-free store. He's the inventor of those duty-free stores, and it made him billions of dollars. He, but he's not as well known for his creation of these airport retail, as he is known as the James Bond of philanthropy among his peers. He's, no, he's known for this ability to give away and to give money without ever being recognized that he's done it. And this isn't until just recently that it's been uncovered that he's given so much away. In fact, he's given away $8 billion of his fortune over his lifetime. That's 375,000% per, 375, of his total net worth. He saved about $2 million for retirement. And just in his own statement of what he's done, when asked about it, he says, giving has given me a lot more pleasure. Giving while I'm alive has been a lot more fun, not just leaving it to when he dies. And I don't doubt that because Acts 20.35, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And I just think that's a general truth for everybody. You just, it just It's just a blessing to give, and that blessing is even more than when you receive. But here's the kicker. Feeney's not a Christian. He's not a believer. He's grew up Catholic, doesn't really go to church. He thinks Catholic church is okay, but he's never really considered himself much of a churchgoer. So his motivations aren't coming out of a love for Christ or out of a uh, the freedom of the gospel of grace. What this means for Feeney is that unless he turns from his unbelief and embraces Jesus, he could give away even that last two million that he has going to utter poverty and still not atone for all the sin that he's committed against God. Giving and generosity by itself, though commanded to Christians, does not of itself save you or make you right with God. Only The only way to a right relationship with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And the first 11 chapters of Romans is all about that very thing. You stand guilty and stained with sin beyond all cleansing, so do I. We are worthy of God's judgment. 
And then God sent his own son to fulfill all righteousness in real life and then to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins. The righteousness that we could not attain to, Christ attains to. The sin that we commit, Christ has paid for. So the only thing left for us is to believe in Jesus, or as my son Easton says, believe into Jesus. And actually, he doesn't even know it, but he's a better Greek scholar than all of us because that's what the word literally means. Believe into Jesus. No works, no rituals, no waiting to see if you've done enough good in this life, no waiting to see if you've given enough away in this life. You are justified at the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 4, 5. So we're just walking through Romans now. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God because now we are justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been raised to newness of life. That's Romans 6.4. Romans 7 and 8 tell us that there's a struggle, a real battle with sin, but that we don't face the condemnation of the law. That's Romans 8.1. We are free, free, free from the condemnation of the law, and we look forward to God gathering his people and fulfilling all of his promises to his people, and that's Romans 9 through 11. So then you come to Romans chapter 12. You come to Romans chapter 12 where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, not on the basis of guilt, not on the basis of trying to earn your way to heaven, but on the basis of the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. It's only on the basis of the gospel that you are even able to do this. You could clear out your bank account, but you could never scrub clean your record of sin against God. Giving away our wealth for the good of others, generous giving, and supporting Christ's church are the fruit of justification, not the basis or cause of it. So when we talk about giving, we first need to talk about rooting ourselves in the mercy of God. That's why I begin us here. We, are going to pre- we want to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual or our reasonable worship, but it's rooted in the mercy and grace of God. And as we'll see, All the other instructions for giving in the New Testament are rooted in this grace and in this mercy. The next principle is we want to remember our creator. The next principle is remember your creator and your provider. Remember your creator and provider. Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you want to turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 8. What do I mean when I say that? I mean that we need to steward our wealth in light of God's ownership of all things. And that was already stated very clearly in the psalm that Sam already read. Jesus, our master, owns the universe. So every lawful dime that has ever come into our possession is the result of God's gracious providence. What does God say to Israel? He says this. This is, this is Israel about ready to come into the land, and he wants Israel to not forget who he is and how he's provided for them. They're about to come in and inherit the land, and it's going to be a fruitful land, and they're going to build homes, and it's going to be great. And God has a warning for them, though. It goes like this, Romans 8, 11 through 18. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water and brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good you, to you in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. So what is God reminding Israel? Well, how do, what does God want to remind us today? He wants to remind us that your skills and your talents 
the school where you learned your trade, your family background that provided you the opportunity for education, your particular talent in investing are all gifts of God's gracious providence. He gives you the power to make wealth. And we can thank him for that because he gives us this power and he entrusts us with this power and with this wealth to provide for ourselves. And even the Bible attests, and if you want to go back, you can go back, search our sermon archives, go back and listen to my sermon on Romans or on Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Scripture even uh, attests that God has given us this wealth to enjoy the life he's given us. But he's also entrusted us this wealth so that we might give it away for his glory. He has entrusted us with wealth so that we might prayerfully, thoughtfully, and intentionally give some of that wealth away for his glory and for the good of others, particularly the church. So with those kind of two foundational principles, let's now start talking specifically about giving. First thing, give out of your first fruits. Give out of your first fruits. Let's turn over to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Solomon is instructing his son. Most of the Proverbs are an instruction of a father to his son. And Solomon says this. He says, verse 5 of chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This instruction to give out of your first fruits would have been simply a reminder to his son to do what God's law had already commanded. Namely, in Exodus 23, 19, quote, The best of your first fruits of the ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God out of trust in God and love for him, the people of Israel were to bring the best and first portions of their harvest to the Lord, to the house of the Lord. And these would have been given in provision for the priests in Leviticus 2, 14 through 16. So this is the instruction. This is the reminder of Solomon to his son of how he should think about giving back to the Lord, worshiping the Lord with his produce and with his income, you might say. But notice how Solomon builds up to this exhortation. It begins with trusting in the Lord. Does it not? In verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's where he begins. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't look around you to determine the way the world works. First, listen to God's revelation and view the world through the lens of God's revelation. So we don't lean on our own understanding. We're not wise in our own eyes. We turn away from evil. And there's an, uh, uh, even a physical blessing here. He says, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And it's only then that you can get to verse 9 where it says, honor the Lord with your wealth. You're trusting in this God whose character has been proven over and over and over. He is kind. He is gracious. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth. Now, what does it mean for us today to honor the Lord with our first fruits? Well, I believe this is this principle is reaffirmed in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, where Paul says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, that there may be no collecting when I come. So what does this mean practically? Well, I, I think the practical application is like this. When the Lord blesses you with income, the first impulse in financial moves should be to give out of the prosperity that God has given you and granted you. To get real practical, each time you receive a paycheck once a month, twice a month, or when you receive some compensation for extra work or bonus or some money from family or whatever, as, as you prosper, make your first impulse and your first financial move to give some out of that prosperity. Now, some of you here today or some of you listening might want me to give you a percentage. Like, okay, Derek, how much? How much, you, how much, you, how much should I give? How much does the Bible say I should give? And I want to be emphatic at this point, because some of you might have been told 
that you should give 10% of your income or to give a tithe. Let me repudiate that in the strongest of terms. Nowhere in the New Testament are you required to give a certain amount or a certain percentage. I am simply astonished to use, to speak lightly, quite frankly. I am astonished at Christian teachers who continue to this day to teach that you must give away 10% of your wealth. Nowhere in the New Testament are you told to give a particular amount or percentage. So I'm not going to give you an amount or percentage. Tithing was required under the old covenant because the giving was actually in order to maintain an entire nation and its sacrificial system. Actually, the total amount, here's, here's the, the unconvenient truth, the inconvenient truth. The total amount that Israelite families were probably giving was right around 22%, if you want a percentage. You're like, oh, I like the 10% better. <laughs> the, it would be about 22% of their income, which the tithe would have been a part. But we're no longer under the old covenant where it's our responsibility to maintain an entire nation state. And the reality is that some of you may not be able to give that much. And some of you may be able to give much more than that. But God doesn't require a certain amount or percentage. And we'll come back to that in a moment. For now, I want us to notice how Solomon's exhortation to honor the Lord from the first fruits of our wealth doesn't end with that exhortation. Watch what he does here, verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, I just know this is where we are required to think very carefully about the scripture here in the Old Testament in particular and how the New Testament is related to the Old. I just said that we are not under the Old Covenant, which is entirely true. Under the Old Covenant, Israel was specifically promised material blessing when they were faithful to the covenant. That's an explicit promise in the Old Testament. Under the New Covenant, we are not structured like the Old Covenant. Many of our blessings are spiritual in that nature, and many of the material promises will be coming later in a future inheritance in the new heavens and new earth. Honoring the Lord from our first fruits will lead to spiritual joy apart from any physical blessings we might receive. However, the principle in Proverbs 3.9 still holds and is affirmed in the New Testament. See, we must be careful that we are reading Scripture and not fearing even the accusation that we may be leaning over into the health, wealth, and prosperity direction. Let's let the Scriptures stand. Let's be very clear. Scripture doesn't promise a certain kind of lifestyle or car or income or vacation package when you give to the Lord out of your first fruits. God is not promising a financial windfall when you give out of your paycheck twice a month. You cannot force God's hand to give you what you want just because you gave him some money. While, it's not, while it is not God's will for all of his children to be poor, it is also not God's will for all of his children to be rich. God is free. This is the key. God is free to do with his possessions what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And nor should we be primarily motivated by what we will get in return when we worship God with our wealth. This is where the prosperity teachers are dead wrong. God is to be worshipped for who he is. Not for what we may get in return. This is what Job said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job said that after he had lost everything. Why? Because God is worthy to be worshipped even if we've lost everything. Nevertheless, we must reckon with the way God promises to provide for his people as they trust in him and give back to him and worship. See, the scripture is perfectly balanced. We don't need to force anything here. God promises to provide for his people. And he even undergirds the exhortation to give with that promise. Isn't that wonderful? Your heavenly father is a gracious and loving heavenly father. 
He is, he is infinitely better than even the best of daddies who love to provide and give to their children. This is what some other texts say. Proverbs 11, 24, 25 says this. One gives freely and yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. And you might be thinking, okay, that's Old Testament. All right, here's some New Testament for you. Mark chapter 10. This is an astonishing passage. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Jesus has just had an encounter with the rich young man. And he's confronted with the requirements of the law. And he's like, oh yeah, I've done all that. And Jesus goes right for the heart and says, okay, give, every, give away everything that you have. Demonstrating in his response, the rich young man's response, going away sorrowful because he had great possessions, demonstrating that he loved his wealth more than he loved God and therefore didn't fulfill the law. He wasn't as right, nearly as righteous as he thought he was. And people are astonished at this situation. And Jesus says, how difficult it will be for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And they're like, well, then who can be saved? And he's like, it's possible. It's only with man it's impossible. But with God it is possible. God can create new life and change hearts and bring about repentance and, and, and loosen people's grip on wealth so that they can embrace Christ. But then he follows up, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So God can save the money lover and transform their heart. Well, then Peter, Peter's got a concern here. Entirely legitimate. He says, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. We didn't have a problem giving up everything and following you like that rich young ruler did. He walked away sorrowful, didn't want us to follow you because you told him to give away everything. When we saw you and you talked to us, like we left everything behind, including our entire livelihood. What, 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 what about us, Jesus? And Jesus says this. Have you ever read this before? It's almost, have you read this passage before? Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in the future. No, it says a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And you like it to stop there, but then he continues with persecutions. So he's going to provide for you, but you're going to follow him and it's going to lead to difficulty elsewhere. And in the age to come eternal life, many who are first will be last and the last first. So in this passage, Jesus is actually promising physical provision for his disciples. And in some case, even significant houses and lands. Jesus distributes this, these provisions the way that he wants to. And we don't leave everything to follow Jesus in order to get these things. Like, well, I'll leave my fishing business behind because Jesus is going to get me an even better business if I follow him. That's not why we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because we want him and because we've been forgiven of our sins. That's why we follow Jesus. We, remember what Job said? Nevertheless, Jesus also pours out blessing upon his people. We can't spiritualize this text. Jesus is talking about houses and lands in this time. Provision. Jesus blesses his disciples with what they need in order to navigate this life and do ministry. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, the things that you need, will be added unto you. So give when the Lord prospers, to use the New Testament language. Give as the Lord prospers. Make your first financial move to give to the Lord in worship. Second principle, give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. And this is going to bring us back to our talk about fixed percentages. We can't get too far in our study without talking about, in giving, about, without talking about the attitude of the heart in giving. All of our giving would not bring God much pleasure if we gave reluctantly and without joy. 
Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I know we're looking at a lot of texts, but this is a topical study, you might say. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. What's going on here? Where Paul is, just prior to this passage in chapter 8, we'll actually look at chapter 8 in a little later, Paul has been encouraging the Corinthians to follow the example of the Macedonians in how they gave drenchy to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And now Paul is sending Titus to make a collection in Corinth and bring it to the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And he wants to make sure that they are ready for the collection. That's what's happening here in chapter 9. But, very importantly, he says that their giving is to be voluntary, not coerced. And again, this kind of language of being acting voluntarily and not coercion repudiates, again, the idea that we're required to give a certain amount of percentage. Let me just... I, this might turn into another sermon. Let me just say again that if you are listening to teachers tell you that you must give away a certain percentage of your income, they are wrong. I'm just going to say it emphatically. It doesn't work within this cheerful giving framework. There's not to be any coercion. It's to be voluntary. This is what Paul says in Verse 5, he says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and, and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. God loves it when you freely give. Look at else what he says right after that. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must Give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves. He loves it. Don't, don't skip over that and think, oh, God doesn't really show emotion. Oh, yeah, he does. God loves a cheerful giver. When you give out of a heart that loves the Lord, I'm like, I'm so thankful to you, Lord, what you've given me. I love to serve the church, and I'm so happy that I have the ability to, to earn wealth and now I can give some of it away out of worship to you and out of, to bless the church and to bless others. He loves that. That brings him pleasure. Free and cheerful giving is a de demonstration of God's grace in your life. He does not love it when you give as though under compulsion like someone is twisting your arm. Guilt-based giving does not please the Lord. Our series, our goal in the series is your long-term joy in giving, not in cranking out some short-term reluctant givers, which I think is often the result of a series on giving. And so we are seeking to avoid that result. We want a church full of cheerful givers who just love doing it for the glory of God and the benefit of others. And, and look at how Paul undergirds his promises. Look at what he promises God will do. God will provide you with every need and provide you with the means to be generous. Do you want to be generous? God will provide you the, need, the means to be generous. Look at what he says in 8 and 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Well, that's comprehensive. Let's just read it again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I mean, he just drew a circle around your entire experience and said, God will provide for you to be generous. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. You can give cheerfully because you've been forgiven of your sins. You can give cheerfully because God supplies you with everything you need and more. You can give cheerfully because God doesn't require a certain percentage or amount. Amen? You can give cheerfully because God has promised you a massive inheritance that's coming in the future, in the new heavens, in the new earth. You can give cheerfully because you know that your giving is serving and blessing God's people. So give cheerfully. But now we need to follow up that exhortation with the principle of give wisely. Give wisely. It's not enough to have feelings of generosity or feelings of love. And Paul even says this in Philippians 1.9 when he says, when he prays for the Philippian church, he says, I want the, your love to grow in what? All knowledge and discernment. It's not enough to have feelings of love and affection 
and generosity. There needs to be, in order for it to be effective, it needs to be coupled with knowledge and discernment. Our giving must be guided by biblical wisdom and not merely by our desires or feelings. Why? Because we may give in ways that doesn't truly help those we think we're helping. Or we may give to ministries that are not worthy of our time and money. We'll talk about that in a moment. We may give in ways that are not in accord with God's will as revealed in Scripture. So we must give wisely. And so a few subpoints under this principle. What does this look like? Well, give to the local church first. Give to the local church first. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Give to the local church first. To whom does God direct in the New Testament have us direct our giving? Are we just give to whomever and whenever. Now, we are called to be generous, but Scripture gives us an order of priority. That's, we find it here and elsewhere, but here Paul says this. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are the household of faith. So, what Paul is not doing, he's not restricting your giving. He's simply prioritizing. That's all. Our well-doing, which obviously would include our giving, is to prioritize the church. Do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. Why? Because the church is the center of redemptive activity. The church is Christ's bride. The church is the only institution that Christ himself promised to build and lead and oversee. The church is composed of your spiritual siblings with whom you will spend eternity. And the church is the institution charged with carrying out the great commission. All the great parachurches out there or parachurch organizations out there notwithstanding. It is the church that is prioritized in Scripture. And I'm not just referring to the universal church. It's interesting to note in, in the New Testament that the word ecclesia, which is what is translated church in your New Testament, that word is used most often to refer to local churches. And here's just a stat for you. Out of the 105 times that word is used in the New Testament, about 70 times it's used with specific reference to local churches. The local church is the center of God's redemptive activity. He is building up, Christ is building up his universal church, but it is happening through local churches. The local church is where we worship and hear the word of God preached and taught. The local church is where we are governed and shepherd, shepherded by our elders. The local church is where we are discipled and where we disciple others. The local church is the primary place where we develop gospel-centered relationships and accountability. The local church is the sending hub for, the local, for local and global missions. The local church is the center of community evangelistic outreach. The local church is where the poor Christians are cared for. The local church therefore, should be our first priority of giving. So that's the first point in giving wisely. Make the local church the priority. But again, Paul's not restricting. He's prioritizing. So then we can say this. Give the faithful, Christ-centered, gospel-prioritizing ministry second. We're not restricted. There are a lot of great, vital ministries out there doing a good work for the gospel. And... They're doing their best work when they're in partnership with the local church, I might add. But that's for another sermon. What are some institutions you might consider? Mission agencies or individual missionaries, teaching ministries, Christian adoption agencies, Christian schools and colleges, gospel-grounded poverty relief ministries, pro-life ministries, and so on. So I think we are within our biblical grounds and warrant to give to these particular ministries. These institutions rely upon donations, and inasmuch as they're working according to biblical principles, they're worthy of our support. All right. But that leads us to say this. Do not give. Can I, can I give a strong negative here? Do not give to unbiblical churches or ministries. 
It should go without saying that we shouldn't give our wealth to ministries that are working in at cross purposes with God and his word. But I want to say this specifically because I have in mind two kinds of people that might be here today. The first kind is you, there might be some here today who are actually giving to a questionable ministry. And I would encourage you to consider that and to perhaps even stop doing that immediately. Because to take part in that ministry, if they are working at cross purposes, to support that ministry is, is to participate in it at some level. What are some red flags? Let me give you a few red flags here. The church or ministry has, a comp- has compromised doctrine. Okay, that's the first red flag. They have strayed from the historic Christian faith and they have yielded to the culture on important biblical and social issues. They're no longer preaching the gospel of Christ's cross and resurrection. Despite the many other good qualities of a particular institution, if they're proclaiming and upholding compromised doctrine, they are no longer worthy of your support. And you don't want to participate in a ministry that is leading others astray doctrinally. Even if you have people you know overseeing those institutions. Number two, the church or ministry has compromised or otherwise unqualified leadership. You should only give to institutions that are led by people you can trust and who are qualified to manage and handle the resources that they've been entrusted with in the best possible way. We don't have time to turn to it, but in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Paul outlines for Timothy the kinds of people he should avoid. There are these people who made a profession of godliness, but were devoid of its actual power. And Paul tells Timothy, you got to avoid those people. And he describes them like this. He says, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of uh, pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its uh, power, avoid such people. Now, what's interesting about that text in relation to what I just mentioned about not giving to ministries that have unqualified leadership is Paul assumes that you're able to notice when someone is a lover of self and not be casting an unrighteous judgment. You see that? It's not necessarily sinful to say, I think that person's a total narcissist. I don't think I should give to their ministry. Paul assumes that you're able to do that without committing sin. Isn't that amazing? We're not used to saying things like that in our tolerant society who doesn't allow us to say such things. That's mean. It's unkind. But Paul's actually saying you need to be able to make those kind of judgments and avoid those people for the sake of your own soul. And as it applies to us to not give to ministries like that, there have been recent scandals. I'm thinking of one in particular where there was an, an adultery happened. In this, part, uh, in, in this leader was in a, a particular ministry. And you look back over this particular, and I'm not talking, well, I'm not talking about a famous apologist. I'm talking about somebody else. And if you would have looked back over this person's life and their demeanor and how they carried themselves publicly and the things that they taught, what happened should have been surprised no one. It would have been easy. In fact, here's what's interesting. In relation to this particular person, I had a conversation with somebody here at our church about this particular person, because this particular leader, because they had a friend who was under their ministry. And I said to this person, you know what? Just judging from the pictures and the teaching and the, just the persona, I can't help but this it just seems like he really is in love with himself. I said that to one of our people here. And so maybe you want to encourage your friend to move out of that ministry soon. And not knowing what was going to happen, a few months later, it turns out that this particular leader that I was referring to was accused of and found guilty of committing adultery. And so it, it happens, and we should be able... And so when that happens, I'm just like, should, why is anybody surprised? Right? 
because the way he carried himself. So Paul's point is, and my point is, is that you should be able to, at some level, be able to distinguish good leadership from bad leadership. We have, we have that ability given to us in the Word of God, and it's not necessarily sinful to make those kinds of judgments. All right, next one. The church or ministry makes unbiblical promises to those who give. Making unbiblical promises about money to those who give to their ministry is the mainstay of the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. I mean, that's just how they make their living. Run far away from ministries that claim that God's will for his people is to experience luxurious wealth and prosperity. I hope at this point you haven't come away with that. God is going to provide, and oftentimes in remarkable ways for his people. But he does not promise you luxurious wealth and prosperity if you give to him as though there's this one one and one connection. I give, and he gives back to me a hundredfold. Jesus is in control of his possessions, and he will give them out as he deems best. When a church or ministry makes these kinds of unbiblical promises, they are not worthy of your financial giving. And it's a sign of cracks in the foundation, most likely. All right. The second group, though, I want to talk to today in, the, in regard to giving wisely and, and not giving to these ministries that are ungodly and unbiblical is that you are leery of giving any money at all to Christian organizations because you've recognized these charlatans and you've maybe been burned by them or you've had family members be burned by them or you have family members in ministries and currently being siphoned for all their money, just all their money is being taken from these ministries and giving all this money, expecting healing and expecting financial windfalls. And you've got family members are in these ministries and you just, you can't, right now, it's actually kind of even bothering your conscience that I am here talking about giving. And, and I get that. All right. I get that. I can understand when you see myriads of so-called Christian preachers who are concerned with nothing but wealth, and they're burning you, and they're burning your family members, you're uncomfortable right now with a pastor even talking about giving. I get it. And let me just say that I affirm with you the wickedness of those so-called Christian ministers who use their authority to bleed people of their money for their own gain. Let me just say that emphatically. They are shepherds, false shepherds, who are feeding only themselves. So let me affirm with you that kind of wickedness. But just because there are some false Christian ministers who use the biblical topic of giving for their own advantage doesn't mean that all Christian ministers who teach their people about giving are doing so to line their pockets. There are men with integrity in the world preaching the fullness of Scripture, trying to lead their people in obedience for the glory of God without their personal compensation in their view. There are those kinds of people in the world, believe it or not. Nor do these abuses eliminate, here's what's important, nor do these abuses eliminate the joyful calling for Christians to give to their local church and to worthy ministries. It is biblical. Here's some criteria for us to consider as we give. Look for ministries that have clear Christ-centered biblical goals. Look for ministries that are committed to the authority of Scripture. Look for ministries that are led by men with integrity whose public and online conduct And reputation is humble, modest, godly, and fixed on Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Look for ministries that demonstrate a love for truth and a love for people. Look for ministries that have a long-standing reputation of integrity, honesty, transparency, and good stewardship. Look for those kinds of ministries. Let's turn over to Luke 20 for this last one. Do not neglect other responsibilities or give unto financial destitution. Do not neglect other responsibilities or give unto financial destitution. By prioritizing giving, it's not God's will that you uh, or spiritual to knowingly run yourself into financial insolvency with your giving. And I want us to turn over to Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47, and then 21 through 4, because this is a pillar text for pastors to preach to their people to give sacrificially. Give till it hurts will be the line 
And there are texts in Scripture that call us to give sacrificially. Let me just say very clearly, this ain't one of them. This ain't one of them. What's going on in this passage? This passage has been used over, in fact, you've probably heard sermons, I expect, that use this sermon or use this passage to see, like, here it is. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box and saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. And they all contributed out of their abundance and she out of her poverty, all she had to live on. And then the closing line is give like her. Give sacrificially all that you have to live. Wait, what? All that you had to live on? Really? I have to give all the way I have to live on? Um, ouch. Well, unfortunately, that's not at all what this passage is teaching. What do you do in order to understand what a passage is teaching? You read the context. Let's look at the context. Verse 45 of chapter 20. And in, hearing all, uh, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to the, his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Their robes demonstrated that they were wealthy and it demonstrated their position as spiritual leaders. They loved the greetings. They loved the position of being a spiritual leader. They liked, they liked being recognized this way and having the best seats and being honored by people. What, was all, what also characterized it? This is the kicker right here, verse 47. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive a greater condemnation. So when you read widow there, that should be in your mind when you read widow in chapter 21. What is Jesus talking about? What, ha- what was going on here is that these religious leaders had built a system that was draining money out of the poor. And rather than being a hands-on shepherd who cared for a poor widow and made sure she had all that she had to live on, they wanted their money and they were going to get it. And, and, and they were casting super, uh, spiritual superstition over them so that they would think they would have to do this in order to secure their right standing with God. And there you go. Here's this poor widow giving everything she has to live on. Being a widow in this culture, she wouldn't have had a husband to provide for her. And she literally puts her entire life savings into the box and walks away. Now with nothing to live on. Jesus has just gotten done condemning that kind of thing, and the people responsible for it. This false religion draining people of their money. It sounds a lot like the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers today, doesn't it? Well, Jesus is not commending the woman's sacrificial giving. He's not saying that's a good idea. He's condemning the religious leaders who would set up such a system, who wouldn't shepherd this poor widow and care for her and help her have all that she needed. Rather, no, I want my money and I want it now. I don't care if it makes you utterly destitute. So you can remove this text as your pillar text for sacrificial giving. It's not what it's teaching. It's laying the condemnation down on any religious leader who would treat the poor in their midst like that. We are not called to give to utter financial destitution. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 tells us that we are to work to provide for ourselves so that we're not dependent upon anyone. If we're able-bodied and able to do it, then we are to work to earn our own living to not be dependent on anyone. And then we are to work in order to provide for those who are not able to work and take care of those in our midst who are financially in the terrible financial straits. 1 Timothy 5 tells us that one of our primary responsibilities when we're married with family is to provide for that family. And even for our extended family, believe it or not. It says grandchildren are to care for, grandchildren and children are to care for the, the grandparents. He calls us not to place ourselves in financial destitution as though that is somehow spiritual. He calls us, as we've already seen, to give cheerfully, not under compulsion, and to give wisely. Well, that was all under the heading, Give Wisely. So much there we had to look at. Next, we need to give faithfully. Give faithfully. What do I mean by this? Just give regularly. Just a few texts to consider. 1 Timothy 6.18, Paul says that, we need, uh, that the rich in Timothy's church were to be generous and ready to share. Titus was to teach the people to be devoted to good works and to so 
and so as to help causes of our cases of urgent need that's Titus 3:14 Paul says in Romans 12:13 to contribute to the needs of the saints that's a that's a continuous verb that means regularly regularly contributing to the needs of the saints the call to give as God prospers implies regularity in giving as we've already seen again regularity doesn't mean the same thing for every Christian which is why that's the genius of the New Testament. It's not restricting you by percentages. It's not telling you what regularity looks like for your particular situation. Some people get paid weekly. Some people get paid twice a week. Some people get paid by the job. Some people have to wait several months for a, a job to actually pay for itself, depending on the kind of business that you're in, if you're a contractor or something like that. Give as the Lord prospers you, not according to some arbitrary schedule. But I want us to ask the question, what benefit is there in giving regularly? Are there any benefits? And I would suggest that there are more than this, but there are at least two, one for you and one for the institution you're giving to. The first one is regularly, regular giving helps us to curb greed, I think. As money is coming in, if we're not giving regularly, I think it's easy to keep more and more for ourselves, but regularly giving help us, helps loosen the stranglehold that greed can have on us. And this relates to Matthew 13, where uh, Jesus tells about the parable of the soils, and what happened was these thorns, these plants grew up with thorns and thistles, and they choked out the word, the cares and the riches of life. And this helps us, regular giving helps us to cut out these encroachments, these weeds encroaching on our uh, fruitful life right at the root. Therefore, regular giving is a pathway to joy. And, the, and, and uh, it helps us guard against the love of money, which is a ruin to our souls. Paul warns strenuously against the love of money in 1 Timothy 6. That whole section, he's talking about contentment. He's talking about avoiding the love of money, which will ruin you and ruin your life and ruin your soul. But he follows that up in chapter 6, verse 18, with an exhortation to those who are rich in Timothy's congregation to be generous, to be ready to share, to be rich in good works. This idea of regular, regular generosity helps you to avoid that love of money. It's very practical. And then secondly, regular giving is a blessing to the institution to which you're giving. In, uh, nonprofit institutions like the ones we've already talked about and the examples I've given, they're dependent upon your voluntary giving for their ministries. And it's just it's challenging to plan ministries when there are major peaks and valleys in giving. And again, I'm not recommending a certain amount, just regularity. And that's a, that's a blessing and a benefit to both you and the institution to whom you are giving. Next, give generously. Give generously. You know, Scripture from very early on to the New Testament encourages us, exhorts us to give generously. Exodus 35.5, Take from among you the contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Proverbs 19.17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. In the passage we already talked about, Paul calls Timothy to tell his congregation to be generous. The early church was characterized in Acts 2 by being having generous hearts. What, is it, what does it mean to be generous? What does this mean? Well, interestingly, turning back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God promises us what we need in order to be generous. Remember what we already saw here? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that at having all sufficiency in all things you may at all times, your work may abound in every good work. Verse 10, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for, the, for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. What, what ways? Every way. Time, money, resources. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So God actually supplies us what we need to be generous. What, how, what does it mean to be generous? I found this definition in the Oxford Dictionary for the word, the English word generous, which I think is going to accurately capture what the, the Greek is teaching. I found this definition very helpful, just so we can understand what this English word generous means. Quote, this is the Oxford Dictionary now, quote, showing a readiness to give more of something as money or time than is strictly necessary 
or expected. What does it mean to be generous? It means that you're not stingy. It means that you're giving over and above, not just getting to giving to the exact amount. This is what the problem with the Pharisees were. They were giving like just these, they're getting so precise in their giving, but they weren't giving over the top. They weren't giving generously. Think about how God gives. His giving is lavish. He gives over the top. And this is another reason why percentages are such a bad idea. They actually not only cause problems for people who can't afford that particular percentage, but that actually keeps people from being generous because what it teaches you to just give up to that point. Oh, I've given what I need to give, 10%, done. And you're, you're locked in. What if there's an impulse to give more? And the Spirit is leading you to give more, and you have opportunity to give more and enjoy the blessing of giving more. So percentage is just an all, altogether bad idea in case you haven't gotten that thus far, that I, I'm against the percentage thing. Why? Because the New Testament is. Generous givers are ready givers. Generous givers give more than is required or expected. All right, two more very quickly. Give sacrificially. Let's turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians 8. Give sacrificially. In, in chapter 8, Paul is commending the churches of Macedonia because he says in verse 2, in their severe attest of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity for their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this relief of the saints. Their souls were so bursting with joy at the opportunity for providing for these suffering saints that they are begging Paul, grabbing him by his caller and saying, let us give. And you could even imagine Paul saying, well, you guys are so utterly poor. Like, you, well, like no, let us give. The church in Macedonia had been under real positive persecution and their poverty was real. But it's interesting. I want us to see here the, a very important passage that will, or text that we'll look at in a moment that they, the church in Macedonia was, was, Giving The individuals, however, are not required to give according to what they didn't have. And Paul makes this explicit. We can conclude, therefore, that the church as a whole was being sacrificial, but each individual member was not required to give a particular amount. They are only required to give as they were able to give. These church members gave sacrificially. They were trusting the Lord to provide for their needs. But, and this is the last principle, as we'll close up here, this is the last principle, to give proportionally. Give proportionally. So you give sacrificially. Yes, there is an element of times when you say, I can give this up and I can give this up in order to give more, to give sacrificially. The scripture calls us that we're, the Corinthians were commended by the example of the Macedonians. And by extension, we are commended or the, we are encouraged by the commendation to the, the Macedonian church to give sacrificially. To give up some things in order to give more. But we are to also to give proportionally. As we've already noted, we're not called to empty our bank accounts or make foolish put ourselves in foolish financial situations or give ourselves nothing to live on. We are to give in proportion to what we have. And Paul makes this clear. He says in verse 12, he says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. The saints in Macedonia gave despite their poverty because they trusted that the Lord would continue to provide for them, and he did. But there's no indication in the text that they gave away absolutely everything and left themselves without necessities, nor is it indicated in the text, in fact, that the idea is repudiated in the text, that every member was required to give the same amount, irrespective of their, certain, their uh, current situation individually. They needed to give proportionately. Each member was to give in proportion to what they had, not what they didn't have, and they were to give according to their ability. So, in terms of giving, and this sets the stage now for JR and Cliff to follow up, we are called to live life, all of life, in light of God's mercy, in light of the gospel, in light of the goodness of Christ and of God and what he's done on our behalf. Not to somehow inch our way into heaven. You have heaven. Therefore, give. Not give in order to get heaven. We are to remember our provider, the one who has given us every ability to earn wealth. 
We are to give as the Lord prospers. We can give cheerfully. We can give wisely. We can give generously. We can give sacrificially. And we can give proportionally. And this is the kind of giving that glorifies God. This is the kind of giving that blesses your neighbor. This is the kind of giving that builds up the church. This is the kind of giving that furthers the great commission. And this is the kind of giving that brings true and lasting joy for you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for the balance of your word. A word that first sets us on the rock of the gospel, gives us you, gives us heaven, not on the basis of our works. So now that we are free to give, give with wisdom, give cheerfully, give with joy, give to provide for others, give to bless the church, give even sacrificially, to give proportionally. God, please press these truths upon our hearts, cause us to walk in great joy, to be generous, to be light and salt in a world that is selfish and stingy and gives for all the wrong reasons. Give us wisdom and joy in our giving. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.